Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Talking about race can be uncomfortable, but one Connecticut town is not letting discomfort quash discourse. Today we hear from a Southington group about the community conversations it's organized in recent months. Just last week, Southington Women for Progress held a discussion on race. It's part of a series the group started, and coincidentally it was scheduled before a troubling video by a Southington student was posted on social media. Now, are similar conversations happening in your town, your city? You can join us, too, the number 860-275-7266. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Now, for more about uh, the community conversations happening in Southington, I'm happy to welcome into our studio Erica Ruggavane byrne She's the founder of the Southington Women for Progress. Erica, welcome to our show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So tell us a little bit about this group. I understand it's nonpartisan. So uh, tell me what prompted you and other women uh, to get together to form this uh, community group. So I founded Southington Women for Progress about two years ago, and the intent was really to create a space where women who share values could come together and have an opportunity to make a difference in the community. Uh, There's lots of ways uh, to get involved in the community. And so in terms of the women that have uh, come forward, what are some of the issues or areas in your community that they hope uh, to make an impact? Well, one of the things that we started out doing was just taking a look and seeing what other groups were working in the community. And so we have done like hygiene product drives for um, some local organizations. We sponsor a food shelf at Southington Community Services. But a lot of the people in the group are parents. And so education quickly became one of the topics that we wanted to focus on. You know, as a white parent of white children, I was able to see things that were missing in my kids' experience. We also have a number of women of color in the group. And so the experience that their children were having in the school system really showed that there were areas for improvement. Uh, Tell us more about the community of Southington. I used to live in Middletown for years, so I'm familiar with Southington. But we know we have uh, many towns and cities Mm -hmm. in the state of Connecticut. For listeners who aren't familiar with Southington, tell us about, you know, who are your residents? So Southington is about 92 percent white um, using the census definitions. And so it is a very, um, you know, traditionally white town. A lot of residents either have lived there for generations or moved from surrounding communities, so from New Britain, from Meriden. And it's, by and large, it's a pretty kind of conservative, traditional community. And so one of the impetuses behind starting the group was to be able to bring women specifically together so that we had a space to share our concerns and our issues and try to make a difference. I was curious about the demographics because, as you described, that actually describes a lot of Connecticut if you're not taking in our cities. It does. And when we think about uh, how to encourage residents to get involved or even to come to a conversation where you're talking about race, I mean, how do you get people engaged, Erica? So it's interesting. This this 
Last conversation was our third in a series of community conversations. And the last two, a lot of the people who came were members of our group. You know, we also reach out to town council members and board of education members to invite them. And we have been pleasantly surprised with their response to that and their willingness to come out and have these conversations. We were expecting a similar response to this past conversation when we planned it in November. And then the video happened. And so... And tell us more about that video. Well, it was um, a Snapchat video that um, was done by a student at Southington High School. And in that video, he expressed some extremely disturbing views about um, black students and black people in particular. And so that, I mean, we have been trying to have these conversations for the past almost two years, but that video really served as a catalyst to really have these conversations at a deeper and broader level. And one thing that was able to happen was at the school board meeting on January 10th, there were students at Southington High School who came to the board meeting, and these are students of color, mostly black students, and shared their stories. And it was, before that, a lot of the administration response had been, you know, this is a one-off incident, it's not representative of our town or of our community. And that had kind of been the way that the administration had been navigating previous incidents as well, that it was just, you know, it, it wasn't representative. And I think hearing the student voices and hearing these were high school students share how they felt, you know, physically and emotionally unsafe at school um, and minimized by teachers and administrators, I think has really had a big impact, particularly on the superintendent and the assistant superintendent. And they've been now willing to say that there needs to be a more systemic look at addressing racism in the schools. This is where we live. In studio with me, Erica Ruggavane Byrne, founder of Southington Women for Progress, a nonpartisan community group based in Southington, Connecticut. Uh, we invited Erica onto the show to talk about the series of conversations this group um, has facilitated, uh, talking about uh, topics that aren't always uh, easy uh, to navigate, including when you think about your last uh, uh, community meeting, Erica, where you're talking about colorblindness. So uh, you were just talking about students uh, at a Board of Ed meeting on January 10th. Uh, this particular meeting I'm referencing just happened, I guess, just a couple of weeks ago or last week. Yeah. Uh, but tell us um, when you um, mentioned this video that happened and it might have galvanized some more interest. And maybe this is something that uh, more residents should be talking about. What did town uh, leaders, what did residents say that were not part of your group but who felt uh, that they wanted to engage as well? I think people were, you know, they were shocked and they were surprised that this kind of video would be produced by someone, particularly, you know, a teenage student. And it really, I think, had the benefit of opening people's eyes to the issues of racism in the community. Uh, this is where we live, and you can join our conversation. Here's the number, 860-275-7266. Uh, because, uh, you, Erica, you've mentioned uh, school officials, I wanted to bring into the conversation now the Southington superintendent, Tim Canellan, who's joining us by phone. Tim, welcome to our show. Good morning. Thank you. So uh, tell us more about uh, your reaction when you um, heard um, the students and some of the concerns they raised at that Board of Ed meeting, and then also this community meeting last week, again, talking about uh, race and how uh, maybe some of the uh, residents feel uh, minimized and their concerns have not been taken into account uh, in the past. Well, first of all, the 
the information that the students shared at the Board of Education meeting, I, I think, was it was very emotional, or it precipitated a pretty emotional response among the board members and the administrators. I also sent a communication out to our staff members, and I asked if they would take a few minutes and view at least that portion of the video from the Board of Education meeting. And the responses that I received from staff members were similar to what Erica just mentioned. People were surprised. They were they were shocked, uh, quite frankly, and wanting to know what they could do. Uh, and uh, our overall response, you know, initially, I was like, I have absolutely no tolerance for any of our students to be treated like that. Uh, we really don't. So it was uh, it it was eye-opening to have that many students come forward and you know we're talking about 10 students or so but I, if that's representative of our student population uh, that's a pretty disturbing statistic shall we say so it was it was something that I think allowed us to rethink or take another look at how we're approaching some of the things we do now, for example, we have wonderful things that are happening in all of our schools that help students to learn how to give, how to be sensitive and accepting of others. And, and that happens all the time. It happens every year. Um, maybe it's not enough to do it that way. You know, maybe it needs to be a little bit more focused. So I think it does, it does prompt, uh, you know, some introspection and, uh, and, and a look at how we're actually doing some of the things that we're doing. Tim, I understand that you are forming a council uh, to maybe meet regularly to talk about uh, these issues that the students and other community members have raised. Tell us about who will be part of this group and, and where do you go from here? Sure, thank you. Uh, we, we sat down afterwards, uh, Mr. Medanti and myself uh, especially, and invited the high school principal, uh, Mr. Straneri, to come in, and our director of people personnel services, uh, Meg Walsh, to, to begin to brainstorm some ideas on how we could go about having a, a broader discussion, because it's not just about the color of someone's skin. It's about religion. It's about acceptance of diversity. Uh, etc. So what we, I guess we brainstormed really, uh, were some ideas on who might be valuable contributors to this type of an effort. We wanted to model it along the same lines as a group that we put together for school security and safety. Now the school security and safety uh, committee, it's an interagency committee and we have leadership from the police department, from the fire department, emergency management, emergency management services, and, uh, and the school. These are groups that typically work in parallel with one another, but not always necessarily together, except in certain instances. So our idea was to put a group together, put it on the calendar, meet on a regular basis, and then that's how you begin to build relationships and the ability to work together, and that allows the free flow of ideas, if you will. And that has evolved just in that fashion. So we were thinking along the same lines for a different purpose, but necessarily the, you know, the process would be about the same. So we started identifying um, staff members who, who we have, and, and we're not 
an overly diverse community and we're not an overly diverse staff. So we tried to identify staff members who represented some diversity for us, but we also wanted folks who we knew would be familiar with both curriculum and social and emotional uh, well-being of students. Then we began to look at some of our partners. We, uh, CREC has been a, a really great partner for us in the Open Choice Program, so we reached out to CREC for uh, someone from that organization to, to participate. Uh, we reached out to the State Education Resource Center uh, and asked someone to participate from there. We also have someone who not only works for the Special Education Resource Center, but is a Southington resident. So we thought that was, that was a sort of a bonus, if you will. Uh, and then we're reaching out to a couple of other uh, agencies in town. We have Youth Services, which is a, you know, a branch under the town government side, but yet uh, they work with our, our students and have done some particularly good work with our uh, minority student union at the high school. So we thought that was appropriate. We wanted to also have a heavy representation of students. And the, the interesting thing with that is we're trying to represent the, the diversity that we have across racial, ethnic, you know, religious lines. Uh, we've had students speak up who uh, represent themselves as either gay or lesbian or uh, you know, transgender. So we're trying to represent all of our groups of students uh, without letting this larger coalition get too, too big. Uh, because then it becomes unmanageable. Yeah. Tim, it sounds, I mean, it sounds uh, really good that there's so much uh, work to reach across on many different, uh, you know, stakeholders to get them on board. But then, you know, this is also, I guess, it's hard to, to focus in on a particular area that you hope uh, uh, to change so that it improves, I guess, overall school climate. So I'm just curious, uh, despite getting all of the right people at the table, what do you hope to focus on first? What we hope to focus on first, quite frankly, is, is really just opening the dialogue and asking, and asking folks what they think uh, is necessary for, for improvement. But then we also looked at really four areas or four components of this group. I'm not, I'm not sure that we've done the greatest job in getting information, about, information out about what we do and what we are as a community. So I, I think out of this, we're going to have to have some folks who are willing to work on, on some of the data uh, uh, to be able to get that out, communicate out to the community at large what we really look like uh, as a community. Um, I do believe that we have to have another group or another subgroup from this larger group look at uh, curriculum. And for example, do we engage, we have a, a we have a very, very, very sound curriculum development process and curriculum writing process, something that we didn't have here uh, three years ago or four years ago. Um, Steve Medancy, our assistant superintendent, has worked really, really, really hard on that. But do we do, we do curriculum audits? You know, do we look at materials uh, that we're purchasing? Uh, you know, to to look and see if those materials are representative of our you know of our broader group of students. And then I think we also need to have another group there that's willing to help with the, the communication aspect of that and set up some broader conversations and, and communicate out to those who are interested, A, what's happening, and to, to be able to bring input back in 
you know, to this group as well. I wanted to ask uh, Erica Rugavane byrne uh, to chime in again, founder of Southington Women for Progress. We're hearing from Superintendent Tim Canellan uh, talking about uh, uh, this need to bring uh, people from many different ba- backgrounds together in Southington uh, to help address uh, some of the issues that have been raised at these community meetings. I mean, what is your response? I think that it's wonderful that to see the sea change kind of in the response from the superintendent and the assistant superintendent in the past several weeks has just been, it's really, I'm very hopeful about it. I think there was, you know, as I said, the students speaking really was a very um, impactful moment for everyone. And so to see this work being put in motion, um, looking at the curriculum, looking at how Eurocentric the curriculum currently is, and seeing what can be what can be done to change that, and taking a look at the overall climate, I think it's 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 hopeful. What about uh, uh, efforts to increase uh, the number of minority teachers that are within your public schools, Erica? Is that something that uh, students would respond well to if they feel they have teachers in front of them that understand their background? Um, and we know we're going to be talking about that coming up later here on Where We Live about the minority teacher gap in the state of Connecticut, um, how it's not keeping up pace with the number of minority students mm-hmm. in public schools. Yeah, I think we know from the research that it is important for um, kids of color to have teachers who look like them and who can relate to them. But I also know that, as you said, Connecticut has its own issues just generally around recruiting teachers of color. And so one thing that I have spoken with um, the assistant superintendent about is, you know, maybe, maybe it's not a goal that could be met to drastically increase the number of teachers of color in the district. But one thing that could happen would be to have a goal to make the district a place where teachers of color would want to apply and want to work. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Cheryl's calling. Cheryl, go ahead. Hi. um, My name is Cheryl, and I'm a member of Southington Women for Progress. And I just heard what the superintendent said. And I think while that's a good step, I do think that it doesn't really make sense because they literally just admitted on the 11th of January that there may be a problem. So if you've been denying that there's a problem and treating it like it's a one-off, and then you look at the lack of diversity in the town and the municipality as a whole, as well as the school system, and then you're going to bring in those very same people to discuss a problem that they didn't feel that they had, how is that really going to be effective? And I understand he's bringing in crack, but what about the community members who have been fighting this and asking for change for decades? Let's have Superintendent Cannellan respond uh, to your point, Cheryl. Well, the last part, which I didn't get to say, is that we're inviting parents in uh, as part of this group which is, I think, an integral component in other community members. And we're seeking to have people, uh, again, who represent diversity. So it's not the quote-unquote same group. And, you know, Cheryl and I have disagreed on things before, and I I disagree with Cheryl's assessment of this. Um, But we're just going to have to agree to disagree. Uh, Erica, um, again, moving forward, uh, 
the, you know, we think it's really important to uh, you know, shine a light on what's happening in Southington because it is uh, one of the first steps, right, to mm-hmm. talk to uh, get people uh, from different backgrounds together to talk about issues, uh, to hope to get to some type of resolution. Uh, we're feeling that all people in Southington feel comfortable uh, wherever they are. Uh, you know, I'm just curious about your thoughts on uh, what Cheryl was saying mm-hmm. uh, because uh, you know, not everyone is uh, lockstep with this idea of moving forward in this particular way. Right. I think it, it is important to make sure that as this group begins, that there are very specific ideas and plans in order to develop the racial consciousness of the people in the group. I mean, one great first step would be for everyone in the group, particularly the white folks in the group, to read the book Waking Up White by Debbie Debbie Irving or a similar resource to really help the participants in the group who may not have seen this as an issue in the past to start to do some self-reflection on what it means to be a white person in Southington, in Connecticut, in our country. And to, to start to take those first steps so that as this group gathers and tries to include diverse voices, that it's doing so in a way that is equitable and isn't kind of reinforcing um, norms that may have been happening in the past. I wanted to fit in another quick call before we have to end the segment. Tanita is calling, also a resident of Southington. Tanita, go ahead. Hi, yes. Um, I was saying that I grew up in Southington. I'm a black woman who was raised in Southington. And from when I was five years old, that's when I had my first racist experience. Um, And it's continued on until this day. I'm raising a young black man. My son is five years old. He does not attend a Southington school because of the lack of diversity. Um, Southington does have a great educational program, but Diversity is a huge issue. And with the Southington Women for Progress, they have been doing wonderful things with these community forums. I'm very appreciative of them. Um, There needs to be more done with the town council and with the Board of Education because what the issue is is that people in town feel there is no race issue, there is no racism. Um, And that comes from the fact that they do have a privilege that me as a black person does not. Well, thank you, uh, Tanita, for your call. I did want to read a statement that we received from the Southington Town Council. This is from Chris Palmieri, I believe. I fully support the efforts of this group, Southington Women for Progress, in holding community conversations about ending all forms of racism. Uh, He goes on to say, Southington is a community that's inclusive of all of our residents. We're a community that consistently offers assistance for anyone in need, and our town council supports the equality of everyone and will not tolerate racism in any form. Uh, So I just also wanted to thank Superintendent Tim Canellan um, from calling in today to talk about uh, the work that you're hoping to continue in the future. Maybe you can come back and let us know uh, how it's progressing. Sure. That'd be great. Thank you. Thank you, Superintendent uh, Canellan from the Southington Public Schools uh, uh, Public School District. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Erica Ruggavane Byrne is going to continue to stay with us. She's founder of Southington Women for Progress. And coming up, we're going to hear from the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center in Hartford, which helped facilitate this conversation in Southington last week. We're going to learn more about how the Stowe Center's programs to help communities tackle tough conversations that deal with social justice issues like we've been talking about. Now, do you think your community could benefit from these types of community conversations. We want to hear from you too. You can join us 860-275-7266 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. What are productive ways to talk about a topic that can be uncomfortable for some? In Southington, Connecticut, a local community group recently hosted a conversation on race and racism. It was just one in a series of discussions being held in the town. Erica Ruggavane-Byrne is with us. She's founder of Southington Women for Progress. And joining us now in studio is Oliver Scholes. He's program coordinator for the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center in Hartford. Oliver, welcome to our show. Thank you, Lucy. It's nice to be here. And I should let our listeners know uh, the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center is an underwriter on uh, WNPR. But Oliver, uh, tell me a little bit about uh, the Stowe Center's involvement uh, with the community of Southington. Uh, we talked a little bit about uh, these conversations that have been happening. Coincidentally, there was a, a very racist video posted by a Southington teen um, recently uh, that got community members talking about you know, uh, what can be done uh, to make sure that their community is more inclusive. Um, what's your response to these series of conversations that are happening? I mean, I think, first of all, it's um, having conversation is probably one of the most important things that we don't do uh, when we, we talk about race or racism and other issues in, in American society. And the Stowe Center is really committed to and has been committed for a long time now to providing space um, and and uh, facility for having conversation. Our role in Southington has been to help people talk to one another, um, and that's how we came there in the first place uh, last year, um, to uh, recognize that people were interested in having conversations initially um, around the statue of Christopher Columbus and now around other things too, um, and that uh, you need someone to help you do that. Uh, we don't spend a lot of time learning how to talk to one another, and, and and we do that professionally, and so we can help people do that as well. Uh, when we talk about uh, implicit bias and uh, how uh, many Americans in this country um, uh, benefit from white privilege, that can be hard to hear. Um, also, uh, in the conversations that have been happening over the last two years, uh, when race or racism is brought up, uh, people can get sensitive. People mm -hmm. feel like they may be uh, being labeled a racist if they say a particular thing. So how do you navigate that? I understand uh, the media wasn't able to hear uh, the residents during this community conversation conversation and one of the reasons you wanted people to be uh, comfortable uh, expressing their views. But I'm just curious, Oliver, um, you know, how do you uh, take an issue uh, that can be uncomfortable and allow people to feel comfortable talking about it without feeling like they're going to be vilified for what comes out? Yeah, I, I think there's only only so much you can do. And some of that is is relying on people being willing to uh, step outside. And when I say people, I mean white people here to step outside of their comfort zones and um, um, hear people say, I think what you said is racist or um, what you said was hurtful. And, and um, often I think white people around conversations and race experience defensiveness, experience sensitivity, experience fragility. Um, and I recognize all of those things. I'm a, I'm a white man, and I have had those experiences, right? I, I, you know, I sort of speak speak of my own experience, and and I think that's one of the reasons it is important to be a, a white person in that space, right? Um, in in Southington, that um, it's a responsibility to be with other white folks and and um, help them through those experiences. That's that's sort of. Uh, kind of an ethical responsibility on some level. But I, but I think it is about acknowledging, right? I, I mean, I understand that for some of the folks in Southington and, and around Connecticut, it may be the very first time they've had a conversation about race at all. And that um, is difficult. And um, I get that. 
Uh, Erica, again, you're founder of this group, Southington Women for Progress. You're also a white woman. Has there been, uh, have residents in the community who are not white questioned um, your, your group taking the lead on uh, trying to address uh, these disparities or concerns in Southington? Well, one of the things that I set out to do from the beginning was to make sure that the group, to the extent possible, was an anti-racist space. So I'm happy that, you know, we have a significant number of members of our group are women of color, mostly black women. It's a higher proportion than the population of Southington in general. And so, you know, we set out very intentionally to make sure that, you know, resources were being shared specifically about anti-racism, that there wasn't going to be tone policing happening of the women of color in the group, that there wasn't going to be minimizing of their experiences. And for me, the thing that, that has, has felt the best in, in terms of that is when women of color began to invite their own friends into the group that really signaled to me that, you know, we, we are doing the work to create this space. But yes, definitely, as a white woman, I think I am constantly evaluating where my voice is most valuable to be heard and where it's most valuable for me to step back and help amplify the voices of others. Uh, we're getting a tweet from Annika, I believe, uh, who writes, necessary to a conversation about racism is a conversation about segregation. 13 miles from Waterbury, 18 miles from Hartford, Southington schools are less than 2% African American. That doesn't happen by accident. She's exactly right. We've talked about that many times. It's a, uh, a constant uh, topic of conversation mm-hmm. about the fact that we have um, the way that Connecticut's set up. It's very segregated. And how do you get to some of the fundamental problems yep. when you've got this this uh, system that allows it to happen? Yes. And we're actually planning a community forum, which will be more like a panel conversation about that very topic, hopefully in May. So we're working with Aaron Boggs at the Open Communities Alliance and also Cheryl, who called in, who is a realtor and who lives in Southington to set up this panel so that we can open this conversation because it is true a lot of the people who migrated into town um, between the 50s and now came from these surrounding, quote unquote, urban areas. And there's a sense of, uh, of, you know, well, I was able to make it to make it out and to buy a house and to create a better life for my family and why, you know, why are people of color concentrated in these centers and they they can't get out. And so to be able to open that conversation about how there's actual systemic structural reasons why that is the case, I think, is very important for people to hear. You're listening to Where We Live. Erica Rugavane-Byrne, founder of Southington Women for Progress, in studio with me. It's a nonpartisan group uh, in Southington. And Oliver Scholes, program coordinator for the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center in Hartford, Connecticut. You can join us, too, 860-275-7266. Ethan's calling from Woodbridge. Ethan, go ahead. Yeah, hi. Uh, So talking about racism uh, in school systems uh, brought to mind an incident earlier this year in Woodbridge at Amity High School. I work with a large amount of Jewish teens in the area, and they had all commented on um, some pretty glaring issues of anti-Semitism among the student body. I started with egging um, Jewish families' houses among Bethany Orange and Woodbridge, um, and escalated to swastikas among, uh, like, within the school. And uh, unfortunately, I, I know the superintendent is no longer on the call, but I just wanted to, to start a, a bit of a discussion about um, what, exact, what exact action is being taken 
towards these students specifically that are um, essentially <laughs> committing these, for lack of a better word, hate crimes towards these other students. Um, it, it's it's just upsetting when you you have uh, a culture in this country that is uh, perpetuating uh, this rise in um, behavior, and that you you see these adults and and, and people in these higher positions not taking stern action against these other children to really make sure and like send a clear message that that behavior isn't tolerated and instead are effectually uh, complicit in enforcing this behavior. Well, thank you, Ethan, uh, for the point that you raised. Um, uh, Oliver Scholes is with us from the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center in Hartford. Um, unfortunately, we can't talk about how uh, schools come up with policies or disciplinary policies to address when students um, are engaging in hate speech. Uh, but when you have these community or helping facilitate these community conversations, uh, you know, how do you um, address uh, residents' concerns about whether it should be a zero tolerance? when certain things are said, or is it a teachable moment? I mean, how do we navigate that? I think the first thing is to recognize that these incidents don't happen in a vacuum, right? If students are engaging in racist or anti-Semitic or homophobic behavior, um, that's not something that uh, is sort of springing fully formed from from young people. And so it requires us to think about what else is going on in the community, and, and this speaks to the point that um, you and Erica were making a moment ago about the deliberateness of segregation, right? Like, there's a reason that these communities are predominantly white. You know, Connecticut was ground zero for anti-Semitism for a long time, right? And, and thinking about um, housing covenants, right, which were designed to keep Jewish people out of communities, designed to keep black people out of communities. Um, so I think one of the things that is really difficult is is there's a tendency when something happens in the schools to think about how we, how we deal with students, how we deal with young people. And that's important. Um, but it also requires us to reflect on what else is happening, what is happening with teachers, what is happening with administrators, and what is happening with parents um, elsewhere in the community, and and to not not um, uh, not let every let let ourselves off the hook, so to speak, right. Well, Erica, can I go back to you because uh, we talked about uh, the conversation coincidentally being scheduled when you had a, I believe, a Southington teen posting a very um, violent, uh, you know, the the language that he was using, uh, the racist language uh, on social media. Um, obviously, the school district has a policy that they're handling with this particular student, but. How, did, how does the town want uh, this to be addressed? Are there um, questions about whether this will be a slap on the wrist or if this warrants um, expulsion? I mean, I think the hard thing is that, understandably, student discipline is often kept very private on what happens because it's protecting the, the student's privacy because they are minors in most cases. One thing that we did hear, though, from the students who spoke at that January 10th Board of Ed meeting is that they understood that, that student privacy was important, but that often that they felt that when they reported something had happened to them, they never had any idea if any follow-up was done or if there were any consequences for the students. So I think it is important to find that balance between respecting student privacy, but also making sure that the students who are impacted and the wider community understands what the consequences are for those actions.
Uh, we just have a, a couple of minutes left uh, for communities, uh, residents who may be hearing this conversation or thinking about, this might be good for where I live. Uh, Oliver, what are some suggestions you would have uh, for other communities in our state uh, in terms of, of wanting to find a productive way to have a conversation like this? Yeah, I think the first thing is um, thinking about buy-in, right? It, it, you know, it doesn't do any good for me to, to come to a community and say, I think it's important for everyone here to talk about racism if nobody's there is interested in it. And so I think buy-in is the first thing. Um, and then it's it's sort of thinking about what 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 do we want and need out of this conversation right now. And in some cases, um, it's simply to have a dialogue, right? We want to we have a series of these across the course of the year. And I think it's important to have someone who's from outside of your community to facilitate those things. I think that's really useful. Um, and in some cases, it's more concrete. We want to have, enact certain policy steps. We want to we want to get real real into the into the weeds of this. Um, so I think I think it's important to buy in. And then I think it's important to think about what you want right now in 2019 and 2020. And Erica, before we go, what's the next conversation you have planned? Our next conversation is on February 8th, and that's going to be on talking with children about race and racism. Erica Rugavane byrne again, founder of Southington Women for Progress, a nonpartisan group. Erica, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Also, Oliver Scholes, program coordinator for the Harriet Beach, Beecher Stowe Center in Hartford, also an underwriter here on WMPR. Oliver, always a pleasure. Thank you, Lucy. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're actually going to get an update on efforts in Connecticut to increase the number of minority teachers in public schools. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. From Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow when you sit down to watch your favorite show, do you check the program schedule for a weekly listing or do you turn on Netflix or Hulu and start binging? On the next Where We Live, we're going to take a look at what the rise of Internet-based streaming services means for the television industry. You can join us, too. That's tomorrow. Uh, now, uh, shifting back to our conversation, the number of minority students is growing in Connecticut, but that doesn't mean these students see teachers in their schools that look like them. Research shows that having teachers from diverse backgrounds can help minority students. It's called the role model effect. We'll learn more about that in just a few minutes. But I want to welcome uh, back to the show Jacqueline Rabe Thomas, reporter with the Connecticut Mirror and ProPublica State Reporting Project. Uh, Jackie, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I wanted to uh, hear more about your reporting on how local school districts are trying to address the minority teacher gap, so to speak. It's not looking good? Sure. So statewide, a decade ago, there were... 12 white educators for every 100 white kids. Last year, that number increased to 17 white educators for every 100 white kids. So the number of white educators in the classroom is is increasing. Meanwhile, for minority kids, it's much, much lower. Two minority educators for every 100 minority kids. That number hasn't changed over the last decade. It's been pretty steady. Um, now, you know, there have been some real great efforts along the way to increase that number, but the issue is that there are many more minority students as our demographics shift both in the in Connecticut and across the US to have more minority students. So we're just not keeping pace in Connecticut. So despite all these efforts that Connecticut has been doing, we're just we're just like barely keeping our head above water with making sure we have enough people who are reflective of our population. Uh, before we hear about some state efforts to 
try to change this. I wanted to hear a little bit more about, you know, why do uh, proponents of increasing minority teachers in public schools, why does it make a difference? What does the research tell us? So there's a lot of research, including most recently Joshua Hyman out of the University of Connecticut. He found that there's this what's called a role model effect, which essentially says, you know, relationships matter. And so when you go to school and you see someone who looks like you, um, you're more likely to, you know, have similar experiences, have have similar um you know, things that you can relate to a little bit more and the relationships grow and and those things matter. And you don't necessarily need someone to look like you to have that positive relationship, but it it doesn't hurt. Um, And it also helps sometimes as well for, for people having a hard time connecting in school. And maybe those students will uh, graduate and want to uh, enter the teaching profession if they think it's something that uh, they've seen a role model before them that think that maybe they think the teaching profession is for them. That can't hurt. Exactly. It raises some aspirations. (laughs) Um, When you look at the number of school districts in the state of Connecticut, um, in your reporting, uh, 23 school districts did not have a single minority educator on staff. Uh, Meanwhile, in urban districts, uh, it's, it's a little more fair, the balance? So in urban districts where they're overwhelmingly minority students, they are higher rates. So they are things like 25, 26 percent in Hartford or New Haven. Um, but there's still a huge disparity because, you know, it's 80, 85 percent minorities. Um, but places in like Ashford, Ashford sorry, um, where there's 16 percent minority kids, there's not a single minority educator. Cornwall, 23% minority educators. Eastford, 14%. So you have districts where there are, you know, a sizable amount of minority kids where there's, there's just not minority educators. There's 23 of those towns. We have tape of uh, Representative and longtime uh, Waterbury educator Johanna Hayes speaking at the Chef versus O'Neill 30th anniversary celebration earlier this month. Uh, in the clip, uh, Congresswoman Hayes is talking about her daughter, who's now a teacher in West Hartford, and about the importance of having more minority teachers in the suburbs. When I was named National Teacher of the Year, people said to me, why don't you get Waterbury to hire your daughter? I'm sure you have some influence and some pull. And I said to them, because West Hartford needs her just as bad as Waterbury. And when we're having these conversations, this is what I need for you to understand. It's not just about black teachers teaching black students. We cannot, she talked about, she works at Hall High School, and it's one of the schools that have kids who are bused from the Hartford community into West Hartford. We cannot have this message that you got a seat in the lottery, and now we're going to send you to a school where you're going to have a better education. And then kids get there, and what meets them on the other side is no one that looks like them. Right. Because the, the subtext of that conversation is to be good, to be better, to be adequate, to be sufficient, is not to look like you. And that's, again, Congresswoman Johanna Hayes. Uh, So tell us more about the efforts. The Department of Ed uh, sees that there is a need uh, to have more more minority educators in the classroom. So what are some steps that uh, the Department of Ed has proposed, that the legislature has backed? So so recently, the State Department of Education, seeing that there's this huge disparity, has approved new programs. The State Board of Education has approved new programs to open. The Relay, which Johanna Hayes is actually um, part of in Waterbury, um, has had 91 people complete last year to get 
teacher certified for high need areas, and only 8% of those students that went through that program to be t- future teachers were white. So the, the overwhelming majority of that program is putting out teachers who are minorities. Those are coming from, you know, paraeducators who are already in the schools, already have those connections in the communities and getting them across the finish line. Um, and then in December, the State Board of Education approved Teach for America to have bilingual education teachers. So people who are already in the schools, people who have a 3.0 GPA in their bachelor's degree, who are highly qualified, just aren't certified in the right areas or to get them across the finish line. So sort of clearing those barriers. And then as far as what the state legislature has done, the state legislature has made it easier for people to come from other states. So a few years ago, I, I remember this person who was a teacher in Puerto Rico testifying before the the education committee and saying, I just want to teach in Connecticut, but my certificate is not recognized here. The State Department of Education and the State Board of Education has changed that courtesy of the legislature changing the law. They've also um, allowed more states to um, have reciprocal agreements so that the State Department of Ed can recognize those agreements if the State Department of Ed has determined that that state's requirements for becoming a teacher are sufficient. So have really given the authority to the State Department of Ed to do that. Also, um, on praxis exams, you know, the, the test that requires, um, one of the many tests that are required for teachers to, to enter the, the classroom, um, they're allowed to retake that for free. So if you fail the first time, you don't have to keep paying the $70, $75 to hopefully repass it. So the State Department of Ed has also um, negotiated a free retake of that test. And then... Um, you know, I could go on and on. There's mm-hmm. just there's some there's many different things that have that have happened to sort of clear some of those barriers. Jacqueline Rabe Thomas is in studio with me here on Where We Live, reporter with the Connecticut Mirror and ProPublica State Reporting Project, as we talk about efforts to increase the number of minority teachers in Connecticut public schools. You mentioned uh, Relay. I understand Teach for America is also helping uh, get more people uh, into the classroom. But are there challenges with um, how they're preparing? these uh, applicants? I mean, can you explain how this these programs are different from, say, obviously going to uh, to uh, UConn for their uh, Master of Ed program? So it's a much um, different than a traditional teacher preparation program. It's a, abbreviated, typically, and it's um, it's not the typical pedagogy that you would expect in a, in a teacher preparation program. Um, so it has raised concerns that among um, some teachers' unions and teachers specifically that, you know, what these high-need students need in, in some of the um, urban districts are high-qualified teachers. Um, we don't need to lower the bar to get minority teachers in there. We just need to increase the pipeline, make it easier for teachers to get in the minority teachers to get in the classroom, do things like more scholarships so that it's easier to become a teacher um, and more affordable, rather, to become a teacher. Um, and there's, you know, the State Department of Ed in 2017, they had a survey of of many stakeholders. And in the teacher stakeholder group, they one of the, the concerns that was highlighted is that there's racism at play in the high hiring process, that um, a level of state oversight in, in the hiring process would might be helpful in some districts to, to make sure that there's, you know, really whoever's the most qualified is getting the, the job. And how are school districts responding to that? School districts are um, 
I think each district is sort of going their own route on how to go about getting more minority teachers in their in their classroom. Um, I wouldn't want to say that I know what every single school district in the state is doing, but I have, you know, when you look at some districts, you see that their their rate of minority teachers is really high, and so you can kind of see that maybe they've prioritized it. Uh, I should mention uh, uh, Brookings uh, published a a paper about the research uh, being done about uh, minority educators in classrooms across the country. Uh, Finding bachelor's degree completion gaps make it much harder to achieve a teaching force whose diversity mirrors that of the student population. Uh, So we were talking about uh, Department of Ed and uh, how the legislature is trying to address this problem. But we now have a new governor, Governor Ned Lamont. Uh, What is uh, is he saying, if anything, about this need to get more uh, minority teachers in the public schools. So during the campaign, one of his regular talking points was we really need to have a teaching force that's reflective of our population. And his solution was that we need to have scholarships for more people to make it more affordable to come into the working force, as well as, um, you know, the teaching workforce has really been sort of um, broken down that, you know, it's not really for many, it's not considered a, you know, a highly regarded profession. Um, And so you kind of need to bring that back as well as provide some scholarships. Um, With that in mind, the state has had scholarships for minority teachers. The legislature has regularly cut funding for that. Um, Currently, there's a scholarship program in the state where where people can get up to $20,000 over several years. As the state reduced money for it, the number of people receiving that scholarship over the last several years has decreased from 50 a year to 19. So um, that's a cost driver right there to, to actually make that come to fruition. But if someone prioritizes it, then it, you know, it might happen. Before we run out of time, we should mention um, just the idea of having more diversity in our classrooms and public schools. It's more than just uh, having a teacher that looks like the student. But when we look at data of how a discipline falls disproportionately um, harder, uh, when we look at uh, minority students in public schools, I mean, that's something at play, too, of how a same race teacher would handle a particular incident or even um, understand more of a background of a child that's that's struggling. Exactly. So Connecticut has the ninth highest suspension rate in the country. We've done a lot of stuff to bring down that suspension rate. Um, we still have the ninth highest suspension rate. We also have huge disparities in who is actually being suspended and expelled from school. And that might be something that comes up again in this uh, new legislative session, uh, previous bill uh, to give more uh, authority to teachers of how they handle uh, disruptive children in the classroom, uh, vetoed by former Governor Denham Malloy. So we'll have to see if that comes up again uh, this session. But I want to thank Jacqueline Rabe Thomas again, a reporter for the Connecticut Mirror and ProPublica State Report. Project for coming in. We're going to tweet out a link to her article. Uh, just look at, at where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.